Okay. Okay. So uh, welcome to the fir- the second episode of the Healthcare Scholar Audio Experience Podcast. Uh, here, I'm Norman Wynn. I'm a second year pharmacy student at the UT College of Pharmacy. Uh, here, I have my lovely co-host. I'm Nidha Mudney. I'm a P2 here at UT College of Pharmacy as well. And I'll let our guests uh, introduce themselves. Uh, Lucas Hill, a faculty here in the College of Pharmacy and Director of Operation Naloxone. Hi, I'm Mandy Renfro. I'm a fourth year PharmD student here at UT College of Pharmacy. I'm Lindsay Loetta, also a P4 uh, PharmD student at UT. Yeah, and so welcome guys. Uh, I just wanted to thank y'all for taking the time out of your day to come and do this with us and talk about the opioid crisis at ADM on a Friday morning. It's fantastic, <laughs> absolutely fantastic. Um, so just to introduce uh, who you are in general, like what the Healthcare Scholar uh, Audio Experience wants to do. Uh, we're basically an interprofessional podcast that wants to highlight unique stories and the most current healthcare issues, the most critical ones, uh, such as the opioid crisis, um, and be able to talk about those issues and do really deep dives into those topics um, and bring on fantastic guests like yeah. such as these. Uh, and to, to also to promote intercollaborative care. I feel like that's very important for sure, where healthcare sure. is going to and, now. And of course, this is a very relevant topic um, that's being talked about in the news constantly. Um, so yeah, we just wanted to start off by asking y'all, where do you, like, why, how do we get into this situation? Um, so professionally? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I went to the University of Missouri, Kansas City for pharmacy school, mm-hmm. ended up in Pittsburgh for two years of residency, mm-hmm. and that was when, uh, it was 2013 to 2015, right when fentanyl adulteration in the opioid supply was blowing up. Right. Um, so we had a a cluster of overdoses in one weekend. A medical director asked me to help implement a naloxone dispensing program in our family health centers, and uh, here I am. Fantastic. <laughs> so, and during my first year was when Andrea and JP, um, the, who were the founders with Dr. Hill, mm-hmm. kind of really started um, doing outreach in the community with Operation Naloxone. I right. guess they had started it maybe like the summer or the semester before mm-hmm. me and Lindsay started. And so um, I just really gained interest in that. Uh, I was working at CVS at the time and we did modules on Naloxone, um, but you do modules on a lot of things. And so yeah, um, I knew that this was different and this was like of a higher importance and that I wanted to kind of be involved with. Mm -hmm. And so I just started volunteering at different events and asking more questions um, and then really just enjoyed the experiences I was having with participants in Operation Naloxone training Mm -hmm. um, and then just throughout the community people always have questions about opioids, always Mm -hmm. have questions about Narcan and so um, getting to utilize the things I was learning in school Mm -hmm. through volunteering uh, just really made the rest, like me want to stay involved the rest of my years. That's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I got involved professionally based on what I experienced personally. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm super candid and open about my background and where I came from. Mm-hmm. And from the time I was born until about age seven, mm-hmm. I was exposed to, and I have his permission to say this, um, mm-hmm. my dad's um, substance use disorder. Mm. And that profoundly shaped my childhood and then who I became as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad has been sober for over 22 years. We just it's celebrated. It's awesome. It's amazing to hear. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he's one of the most important people in my life to me. And mm-hmm. because of him and his recovery journey, I've grown up in the recovery world 
My family and I have um, spoken in meetings to other people who are experiencing the same thing. Right. And that instilled in me at a very young age the desire to use my past to help others today yeah. for a better future tomorrow. Um, so that's what really kind of drove me to healthcare. And um, when I got into my first year of pharmacy school and then Dr. Hill came and <laughs> started doing stuff with Operation Naloxone, I was like, I have to get involved. The Naloxone lord himself. <laughs> so I knew like right away that uh, UT had opportunities that mm -hmm. I was passionate about. And so that's how I came to that's be awesome. here. It sounds like y'all awesome. definitely took advantage of the opportunities that UT College of Pharmacy and yeah. just UT in general uh, gave y'all, or every opportunity that came up for y'all, it sounds like. You'll definitely took advantage of it, and that's amazing. Yeah, and for your sure. passion really shows through, especially through your hard work. Um, I'd like to first ask the first question. Where do you guys think the blame truly lies? Where is the crisis coming from? And oh, yeah, before that, uh, we should just go into, like, our general thoughts on the opioid crisis. Oh. Yeah, yeah, so, okay. No, that's okay. Um, but, yeah, so where what are y'all's thoughts on the current situation in, in our nation, across healthcare? Like, what are your general thoughts on the opioid crisis? I mean... Where to begin? Yeah, um, yeah exactly. It's yeah. a tangled web. We can, it is. Yeah, we can try to find mm -hmm. pinpoint that, but yeah. I guess my thoughts are. I mean, you said we're going to talk about Purdue a lot, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and we can start with that if you'd like. I mean, sure. Do you guys want to start? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm okay with that. I mean, it's the most current healthcare news that just come out in the past week. Yeah, so. it is. Yeah. Um, I think it starts with, or started with, and feel free to jump in. Um, drug companies pushing for the use of opioids mm -hmm. and um, aggressively advertising them while maybe not discussing the harms that mm -hmm. can um, come with that. Mm -hmm. And how did they aggressively market them? Um, well, what I've read about is mm -hmm. like um, Purdue specifically, yeah, but I'm sure yeah. the other companies did as well. Of course. Mm -hmm. um, saying that doctors are more likely to prescribe opioids mm -hmm. if they hear that it's like, oh, go ahead and prescribe this from another doctor. Right. So I think I was watching a CNN news article where the budget for Purdue, mm -hmm. just for dinners alone, to bring doctors to hear about opioid right. or about OxyContin from other doctors, the budget in a year alone for just food was mm -hmm. $9 million. $9 million. Oh my God. Nine. Not to mention, wow. they're the bringing dinners? people to this restaurant. Um, they're paying the doctor mm -hmm. to say that they endorse this. So, so a lot of incentives. A lot of yeah. incentives. A lot of incentives for these doctors to prescribe right. more opioids. I've actually been to one, and the way they like sweet talk you and call you is really? very interesting. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Like, mm -hmm. I went to one with one company. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the name, but. Yeah, probably, uh, yeah. But yeah, like they they t like bring you all these meals and they like say such great things. They're so good at doing that. So I can imagine why the yeah. prescription rates are so high now. And they're like, let's talk about a study that was funded by our company. But, so it's mm -hmm. just. I've known some people who were engaged in the speakers bureau to give those talks at dinners, mm -hmm. and the the background story I got from them definitely scares me a little bit. Really? Um, so when I was a student, I went to the free dinners, all the free dinners, I could do whatever you need to do. It's nice. You get right, an opportunity right. to eat places you normally wouldn't. Mm -hmm. um, of course. Mm -hmm. as, a, as a practicing pharmacist and clinical pharmacist, I made the decision that I would not go to any industry-funded dinners mm -hmm. uh, and, and have stuck to that as mm -hmm. much as possible because they do have an impact and and the slides that are being presented mm -hmm. by 
be it a, a physician, a clinical pharmacist, or another professional, those slides were developed by the drug company. Mm -hmm. There are two representatives from the drug company sitting at a table uh, very near the presenter watching right. every move they make and mm, deciding whether or not they're going to keep getting this high amount of pay mm. to go out and give these talks. Um, so it is, uh, I can understand the desire to stay up to date on the latest research, the mm -hmm. feeling that going to one of these dinners might facilitate that, mm -hmm. uh, but take 30 minutes and do uh, an online CE program. Do your research uh, and something, yeah. or, or even instead, I think, mm -hmm. is, is important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this, the opioid crisis does highlight the risks associated with mm -hmm. aggressive mm -hmm. marketing. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it was much different than marketing for any other for any drug, other drug uh, but definitely a concern. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, and just uh, for the people who are watching who don't uh, aren't up to date with the current healthcare news, uh, Purdue Pharma actually just filed for bankruptcy this past week. Um, what's this week? October. Yeah. yeah oh wait. Mm -hmm. No. What's this week? October. September. Oh, September. Sorry, PT was yesterday. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, it's the it's been the Today's week of the twentieth. Today's the twentieth of September. So in the past week, uh, Purdue Pharma actually filed for bankruptcy, um, and so this is why it's a very relevant topic because they were they've been blamed. Uh, for aggressively marketing uh, their Oxycontin uh, brand of Oxycodone. And um, so, yeah, that's why we're currently talking about what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but, yeah, uh, Mandy, any, any thoughts? Yeah. Um, when I first saw this uh, about Purdue a while ago, and I was kind of talking with my family about it because mm -hmm. they're very involved in, like, my pharmacy um, passions and what that's I want to awesome. do with my yeah, career. Awesome. And so... Um, I was like, you know, I don't know if they're the only ones to blame. Like, they're getting a lot of press. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there were doctors who were way over-prescribing. There were pharmacies who were way over-dispensing. There mm -hmm. were pharmacy distributors who were way over-distributing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so kind of like what my family and we were going back and forth and talking about is like, um, even if you can just get like a portion of the money back that these companies made mm -hmm. off of the opioid crisis to put towards research for new pain medicines that aren't harmful or less harmful right. or um, to put towards research to get people help who mm -hmm. need it now mm -hmm. that they um, have been through like the repercussions of the, the repercussions opioid crisis. Of the crisis is like right. that's kind of what we talked about and I like really thought that was a great way to look at it mm -hmm. but it's just really complicated yeah, yeah it's very multifaceted multi across all disciplinaries mm -hmm. yeah it's definitely an issue I think that uh, I appreciate the focus mm -hmm. on the the contribution of pharmaceutical drugs to mm -hmm. the crisis right. on over prescribing over dispensing mm -hmm. but I also am seen uh, as a across healthcare, mm -hmm. we continue to focus on that a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. And the story of the opioid crisis is, mm -hmm. is really a story of unintended consequences at every turn. Um, so a, a desire, a, a real deep-seated desire to do better for people with chronic pain mm -hmm. led to over-prescribing. Over that has led to long-term development of opioid use disorder, uh, widespread access to mm -hmm. prescription opioids through diversion. Mm -hmm. Then cracking down on that supply led to a shift to the illicit market. Illicit market. And I think we need to be very thoughtful about every new intervention that we want to take to address the opioid crisis, mm -hmm. what kind of harms could it have? And so not saying that, that Purdue or other pharmaceutical companies don't, don't need to put some investment into it mm -hmm. and feel some pain and right. that some people should 
probably go yeah. to jail. There has to be some repercussions. Yeah. But as we see pharmaceutical manufacturers face consequences mm-hmm. for their behavior, right. how does that change pharmaceutical companies' mm-hmm. behaviors going forward? Mm-hmm. Will they be less willing to exactly. invest in research around drugs that could potentially be misused? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of interest right now in using ketamine for severe depression and mm-hmm. suicidality. Yeah. Are, are drug companies going to be afraid to invest in it because they know if we market this drug that we developed, 10 years down the road, if some people misused it and were harmed, we're going to be held liable for millions of dollars. Um, so yeah. why even waste our time? And right. uh, I think that's a real concern. And it, again, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be uh, in trouble for very specific problematic practices, right. um, just as they should be for other classes of drugs. But we need to think about unintended consequences. Right. Yeah, so definitely be mindful of that fact. And, and uh, definitely you're right. Like it did. I would assume start, I mean, I probably wasn't born around that time when they started really pushing for it, but um, they, yeah, I can imagine that it started out with good good intentions, mm-hmm. as most things do. Um, but there's always going to be faulty doctors, faulty people who yeah. end up messing it for everyone yeah. else. So. Unintended consequences, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Let's move on to the next yeah. part? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, let me see. Okay, so one question that someone submitted for us was, um, should, do you think naloxone should be required to be given with patients who are taking one or more opioids together, or what do you think? Yes, even if they're taking one opioid. Mm-hmm. I think um, they maybe don't necessarily have to get naloxone, mm-hmm. but that option should be available. They should be educated about, here's the risks associated with taking an opioid, here's something to have at home, I'll use Operation Naloxone's example, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. like you would have a fire extinguisher at home. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Just like Lindsay said, I think um, you know you're not gonna force someone like you're not gonna force someone to get an EpiPen if they have an allergy. Yeah. You're not gonna really <laughs> shove it onto them. I mean, <laughs> you're gonna just give them the option and um, educate them, yeah. and I think we're trying to do that and especially as students who have been a part of operational Luxem, mm-hmm. um we try to do that um but i think across the board mm. we could do better gotcha. yeah definitely well said i think keeping it as simple as possible is important i've seen some pharmacies want to calculate a, a risk score mm-hmm. complicated risk scores or uh, calculate out morphine equivalent dosing and pick mm. a specific threshold. So really analyzing <laughs> the risk factors and how that plays into like, the cost benefit analysis. Which is yeah. great, but somebody, yeah. a researcher or an administrator came up with that idea, mm-hmm. right? Not a practicing not pharmacist. A practicing pharmacist. <laughs> and the more barriers, the more upfront work you put in, mm-hmm. the less likely you are to get a pharmacist to actually offer naloxone. Mm-hmm. So the more yeah. that we can say, hey, this is something that we offer to every single person who picks up an opioid, mm-hmm. even if you're on a really low dose, uh, it's a one-time prescription. Maybe the, you have a kid in the house. Maybe you will at some point. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Accidental exposure is possible. Here, you should have one of these on hand. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think you're definitely right. Like making it as practical as possible for practicing pharmacists or the physicians or any, whoever that is that's prescribing uh, and dispensing to be able to make it practical for them to actually prescribe naloxone. Yeah. Um, and I've, uh, I actually talked about it with a friend uh, last night. She's a nurse, um, and she was saying how they're actually training EMTs uh, t- yeah, to be able lab. to prescribe or to administer naloxone because they're the ones on the front lines. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to see the most cases that are directly with overdoses. Um, so I thought that was really interesting that they're doing that. I thought that was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. To follow up with that, if a patient were to uh, have naloxone 
concurrently with mm-hmm. no opioid. Um, do you think like insurances would cover all sorts of administration of naloxone, or how would that work? No, the the injector, um, the yeah. auto injector is usually not covered um, mm-hmm. because it's more expensive to make. Mm-hmm. Um, but what have you guys seen um, in pharmacies? There's other dosage forms besides mm-hmm. just the Narcan yeah. mm-hmm. um, that are even sim- like not simpler but simpler to make than the Narcan. Mm-hmm. That will probably be covered. Um, I have a little cost sheet for operational costs, like with and without interest. Gotcha, gotcha. We don't have it memorized, unfortunately. (laughs) I've seen in, um, because I work in community pharmacy, um, I would say generally Mm. Narcan is covered, but Mm -hmm. just the co-pays I've seen, it might be like $40, $45. It just varies depending on the insurance. And for those of you who are watching, Narcan. <laughs> so there there are several versions. Several versions, there you go. And yeah. uh, like Mandy mentioned, mm-hmm. there there's one really expensive auto-injector that's usually not covered. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two versions that are a little cheaper are definitely harder to use. And I think uh, when we did a, a statewide audit to mm-hmm. see how many pharmacies were carrying naloxone and had it ready to dispense, mm-hmm. we found what, what we suspected, which is that Narcan nasal spray really dominates the market at this really? point. Mm-hmm. Um, and pharmacies like it, pharmacists like it, because it doesn't take a lot of assembly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy mm-hmm. to educate someone about, or frankly, easy to dispense with yeah, almost right. no education. Right. Um, <laughs> and so you're, you're gonna get a box that has two foil packs of Narcan doses in it, um, and you just pop it out of the foil pack, spray in one nostril, and you're yeah, done. And you're done. Um, so I think that you'll, you're most likely to see that version available. The downside is if you do have a $40 brand name copay yeah. and mm-hmm. you can't afford it, a lot of pharmacies are not keeping the cheaper generic things in stock, mm. um, so it may be hard to access them. Right. Um, so mm-hmm. we're it's trying to access. educate pharmacies to keep mm-hmm. those as well, mm-hmm. but uh, but Narcan has won the war. Mm, gotcha. Um, but yeah, before we transition into the uh, the question, more questions, uh, which is we're going to record on Instagram Live. Uh, definitely wanted to talk about the things at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're we're talking a lot about Operation Naloxone. Mm-hmm. What is Operation Naloxone? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good question. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It was developed, like I said, kind of uh, by Dr. Hill and some other pharmacy students, mm-hmm. but they really wanted it to be interprofessional right. as well. Um, and so now it's an interprofessional collaboration among the School of Social Work, um, UT, College of Pharmacy. We've trained some med students as trained well. We're students. trying to get nursing. nursing. Dumb so, medical school? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Medical school. yeah. So it's really an interprofessional kind of collaboration. Most of the student leaders come from within the College of Pharmacy. Mm, of um, and then they train, like we train all of the new P1s that come into the pharmacy program. Mm-hmm. Um, and really it's just... Um, I would say they give us a great overview, Mm. whoever is leading the training that day. Um, So it's almost like train the trainer. So Mm. if you've never been to operational oxone before, um, you kind of go through some slides about what are opioids, what are the harms of opioids, what does an opioid overdose look Mm. like, what is naloxone, how can it help in the case of an opioid overdose, Um, when do you administer it, Uh, what do you do after you administer it or before you administer it, Mm -hmm. Um, like 
who should have it? We answer right. all of these questions in our trainings. And then once a pharmacy student or once a community member in the public has received that training, mm-hmm. um, we like to tell them that they can be a trainer now. Can be a trainer now. Um, and amazing. so student pharmacists can now volunteer at our events that mm-hmm. we host in the community mm-hmm. or events that we host at Del Med School or at the School of Social Work or Nursing. Mm-hmm. So um, it's really fun because students get to <laughs> learn how to talk about meds like mm-hmm. even in their first year of pharmacy school when um, or medical school or mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah when you're not yeah when you're not in your pharmacotherapy classes yet you really mm-hmm. get to um, kind of highlight your drug knowledge mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. anything else yeah. I don't know. You hit it all. Yeah, she did. She did. She, really did. she did a great job explaining exactly what, how y'all go through the process of training the students, even on campus and across all the professions. Yeah. Anything Maybe to expansion. That? Dr. Hilker yeah, talked about that, expansion what, to like other colleges and. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Where do you, where do you see the operation going? Um, well, we've had a lot of success with uh, Dr. Evoy at the UT Health San Antonio campus mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. getting more medical and nursing students involved there. Right. Uh, they've even done some trainings in South Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, for non-medical communities and non-college students just in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a, a chapter of operational oxone at the University of Houston that, uh, frankly, I'm a little worried that sometimes they're, they're maybe outperforming us. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Shout out to U of H. They just won the uh, Student College of Clinical Pharmacy Chapter of the Year Award. Which I, think oh, I, did, I, saw that I think I didn't see that as well. Yeah. I think we I got a couple well. years ago, too. <laughs> But they're yeah. really they're doing amazing stuff. It's not yeah. just operational action, but, mm-hmm. but they took that and ran with it after JP and I went out there and trained them. Right. Um, yeah. And I've got a colleague at Texas A&M. Mm-hmm. They're starting to it's do amazing. naloxone yeah. training for all of their uh, health profession students it's on amazing. campus. Yeah. Uh, even beyond that, I mean, uh, really setting an example here on the UT campus mm-hmm. has the potential to impact uh, issues nationwide. The for Office sure. of National Drug Control Policy called me yesterday. Um, wow. They want to hold a White House summit on how to prevent overdoses on campus. Wow. And we're the campus that did it first and yeah. has shown that direct distribution of naloxone from pharmacy students to other peers has saved at least five lives. And, and so they want to wow. hear all about that. Let's give a little cheers to that. Let's give a little cheers to that. Um, but yeah, it's amazing. Like clearly other campuses are taking notice and clearly na- nationwide attention is being brought to Operation Naloxone, which is amazing. Um, so that's why, I'm, that's why we're doing what we're doing, to give you all a little spotlight, <laughs> little spotlight. platform to, to, so that more people can, can reach out to you um, yeah. about this. Um, so yeah, how, how can other healthcare students or other Or also non-healthcare students yeah, too. Yeah, how even can they yeah, get involved? How, how, how can we get involved? So uh, you can find resources on operationaloxone.org. Certainly mm-hmm. reach out to us directly at operationaloxone at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and, we'll ta- and we'll put everything uh, in, in the description, of course. Sounds mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I would also say that what this looks like in your community or your state is going to mm-hmm. vary a lot. But every state is getting large amounts, m- tens of millions of dollars of federal block grants that are focused on addressing the opioid crisis and largely on distributing naloxone. So there's there's definitely a harm reduction mm-hmm. community, a public health group, uh, somebody in your community who's working on naloxone distribution. Right. Trying to identify them if you're not in the in Texas would probably be the most effective the thing. Most effective thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts? Agreed. On that? Agreed. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Yeah. He just puts it so, <laughs> he just, he just puts it so eloquently. Well, I, want I know. Why, why ruin the eloquence of it? Go ahead. Um, you want me to keep going with that? Yeah, go. Okay. So basically, the next general question. Um, where do you see healthcare 
and opioids? What's the relationship going forward? Yeah. Uh, I kind of highlighted it earlier, but I don't think that right now we have um, any like better alternative for some pain people, mm-hmm. patients with mm-hmm. chronic pain, Currently. cancer yeah. pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, like um, we went to a pain summit and they were showing us the research and yeah, it's just like they've studied a lot of different medications, alternative therapies, mm-hmm. yoga, um, acupuncture, different things for so chronic camps, pain. So right? Uh, yeah, complementary yeah. and Complimentary, yeah. I was like, I just remember the acronym from IPC <laughs> and someone yeah. like yeah, And okay. so um, I think opioids still have a place for mm-hmm. patients um, who need them, and they, I, I don't see them like mm-hmm. going off the market anytime soon. Right. Um, if that was mm-hmm. what the question mm-hmm. was trying to get at. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. yeah. I think if anything, I mean, we've already seen like fear instilled in doctors who, mm-hmm. with their prescribing, um, I don't know, like maybe with all this news coming out about Purdue, mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. that fear will be intensified. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that opioids do have a place. It's mm-hmm. just the healthcare professionals need to be educated and the mm-hmm. patient needs to be educated too. For sure. Like yeah. for anything, mm-hmm. for any medication or any procedure or surgery that's going to be done, it's my hope that the provider or the healthcare professional, whether it's a pharmacist or you know doctor or whoever, mm-hmm. would discuss the risks and benefits of each treatment option available yeah. and collaborati- collaboratively with the team and with the patient make an informed decision about where they want their treatment to go so i think opioids do have a place like Mm -hmm. we can discuss opioids we could discuss cam Mm -hmm. we can discuss other options and Mm -hmm. like let's make a decision together do you feel like it's a conversation that we're not having enough of i don't know i mean i think some i think some now some now compared to before compared to before yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think some institutions are really focusing on it Mm -hmm. and maybe have done a really great job at it all along. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But some institutions are picking up on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. I hope we'll find the right balance of benefits and risks. Mm -hmm. My, Mm -hmm. My assumption is that we'll end up at a place where we're slightly overly restricting opioids mm-hmm. because as we're always going to be a little more worried about harm that we cause mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. than harm that we we don't feel like we cause mm-hmm. that we that we project as, project as somebody else's fault because well we just didn't give access um, yeah. now in the meantime there have been multiple studies that came out in the last month showing that uh, aggressive tapering of opioids among people who are maintained on high doses may be associated with increased suicidality oh, and that there, are, okay. there are real consequences right. and so I would encourage especially students who are, are watching or engaged mm-hmm. make sure that the practicing pharmacists who who might have kind of just come around to mm-hmm. realizing what they can do around the opioid crisis that they know that uh, aggressive tapering of opioids is not associated with decreased death. Getting mm-hmm. people naloxone and uh, giving them the opportunity to decrease their dose if they're if they're willing um, to get off benzodiazepines mm-hmm. that have been pre- uh, prescribed concomitantly. Again, if they're willing and ready, right. uh, make right. sure your patient is aware of the risks. But um, uh, a term that I never thought of in this context, but I've heard mm-hmm. from some really great uh, physician leaders around pain management mm-hmm. and compassion in this area is that tapering should be consensual. Consensual. Oh, wow. Right. That's, that's interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. That's interesting because, that, I mean, that's been a very big topic 
the word consent, uh, even across mm-hmm. the UT campus and across, I'm assuming, all the college campuses and even in the uh, current news media, the, the, the action of consent or the word of consent or what it, what, the, what it really means and defining that. And I think that that's really interesting that you bring that into the context of the healthcare provider and the patient and prescribing opioids, yeah. It's not something we think about very much. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll have people sign an agreement before we start prescribing opioids or dispensing opioids mm-hmm. that says we can test your urine this often to make sure you're not lying to yeah, us. We will yeah. kick you out if we see this on your prescription monitoring program. Mm-hmm. We, we don't offer that kind of same respect and request of consent when we talk about withdrawing medications that people, uh, right or wrong, may have become physically dependent on. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. Yeah. Um, should we go to the Q&A? Should, yeah, are you all ready for the Q&A? Oh, yeah. It's going to be okay. great. We got some great, I mean, I don't know if you got a, a chance to look at the questions yet, yeah, but uh, yeah. uh, Dr. Hill got a chance to look, and he uh, definitely we're has perfect. a couple of time. We have time, too, so we have enough time. For yeah, do we have time? Yeah, oh. yeah. We're, we're doing great. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and start the Instagram live. Yeah, uh, go ahead and I'll tag you in that. Yes, tag me in it. All right, so it's going to... This is the first time doing this, so we're gonna see how this goes. Have you oh ever done Lord. a Instagram Wait, live? Wait, check the laptop. I've watched watch your Instagram lives. Get ready. This is gonna be great. This is gonna be Norman, great. can you check the laptop real quick? It's uh. It's doing good, right? Uh, it's not. It's um. It's recording, right? No. Still. It's on your home screen. Let me unlock it one second. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Thank <laughs> God. Okay. I, the whole time we were sitting, I was like, I need to check the laptop. How do we, we like sneak in? I mean, either way, I definitely had a good video as well. We have backups. We have backups. Nice. Okay, cool. Um, let me see how to, how do I tag you? Just be able to add. add so, like, just go live first, right? I'm yeah, go okay. live. All right, here we go. Checking connection. You're now live. Okay, let's say that I'm added on it. Uh, let me, how do I add you? <laughs> I'm glad there's some confusion. Yeah. This, this is not easy for everyone. Uh, I just finally just downloaded like Instagram like last week. Oh, no, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. oh you did it? Okay, good. Yay. Wait, I'm looking for you. Oh, oh. Like, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, do my really, original because I, I have I more reach on there. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say you're not a big social media guy, but you are. Okay, perfect. We did it. So I would set it up on that side, probably behind that thing. <laughs> See, so I'm doing it from my view. So it's like coming out sideways. Yeah, I know. Really good. Uh, really good. So I think it'll look better like that. Yeah. I've never it's paid attention to. Uh, really good. Just presenting yesterday made you fresh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this is gonna be difficult. More difficile. No, yeah. other side to be standing, and then, like, have the lens like that. Oh, other one. There you go. See? Oh, uh, okay. Uh, here, I'll do it from my angle, and you then the you can get it from, from your angle. Okay. Yeah, so that way I'm in the shots as well. Because obviously my followers are going to, yeah. <laughs> Wait, who are they here for? Come on. Can you do it from your phone as well? Yeah, since I sent you a request. Okay. But it's okay. Let's just get started. Okay, actually, then I'll just show them that as well. Yeah. All right, there we go. All right, they are in frame. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> cool. All right. Uh, do you want to start off with the first question, Nitha? Yeah, sure. Okay, we got some again fantastic questions and really great points that people wanted to ask you. Um, let's start with something basic. How do you well, properly administer? I think we should start off. I think Dr. Hill was saying we should start off with the the very first. Question. Oh, the very first uh, one. The very okay. first one. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Go for it. Are you, are you sure? Yeah. Okay. Um, so really, really going straight to the point. Where do you believe the blame truly lies? 
if there is any to give. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys should go first. I don't know. I mean, I don't think you can blame just one mm-hmm. person or one um, profession or mm-hmm. a drug company. I think, I think there was good, maybe good intentions, maybe not so good intentions mm-hmm. behind opioid prescribing, but I think lack of education mm-hmm. and um, maybe being informed kind of started us getting into this situation but right. I mean I don't know that you can blame just one thing right mm-hmm. yeah. it's not really one entity yeah. yeah I mean I think drug companies can take some of the blame I think that doctors can take some of the blame and pharmacists and pharmacies mm-hmm. um, you know the government the FDA for mm-hmm. not paying closer attention More to regulation. Um, mm-hmm. what was going on and mm-hmm. um, yeah I just think it's hard to like we were talking about earlier, there's like a bunch of turns we took and a lot of them led to like worse outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried to regulate it more by changing the schedules and by restricting access and then, you know, more people turn to illicit supplies. And so, mm-hmm. but yeah, I don't, I would say the blame shouldn't be on the patient. For sure. And yeah. I mean, I think everyone's, every patient's different, but I think mm-hmm. overall, um, if anyone out there is like saying, "Oh, it's just the patient's fault for taking too many meds," that's not a very, you know, a very the case. common misconception that yeah. a lot of people, a mindset that people take t- towards this issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I saw the question and suggested it come first, mm-hmm. I did not have an answer. Ah, <laughs> interesting. That interesting. said, um, I th- I think ultimately that it, most of the blame probably belongs with uh, leading federal government legislators and a lot of the state governments that are suing the opioid companies right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Ultimately, who decides um, uh, what restrictions there are on drug company marketing and how to enforce those things and whether or not supportive interventions like uh, evidence-based addiction treatment with methadone and buprenorphine are readily available, whether or not we Mm -hmm. can have uh, sterile syringe access for mm-hmm. everyone who uses drugs and right. whether or not uh, overdose prevention sites, uh, aka supervised injection facilities, mm-hmm. are legal. Those things come from the top down mm-hmm. um, and you create a, a an environment of ultra-potent opioids and the illicit supply and a lack of support for people who are in the most desperate situations mm-hmm. by having policies that, that promote that environment. Um, yeah. So I think that's the biggest issue. And then our knee-jerk response uh, when we're trying to satisfy maybe a lot of voters out there who mm-hmm. have uh, kind of this feeling of politics of personal responsibility. Right, we see right. people who use mm-hmm. drugs as engaging in willful misconduct and deserving some sort of punishment. Um, that leads us to incentivize pushing people off of medications right. and mm-hmm. driving them to that more dangerous environment. Um, so yeah. I, I think policy ultimately is the cause. Right, right. And it's a little ironic to see uh, local and state governments suing mm-hmm. drug companies for causing harm when those same areas are are not providing the resources needed to address yeah. harm mm-hmm. among their most uh, kind of the most harmed individuals. So it really does go yeah. both ways. These are really great answers. Um, I saw something online. I don't know if you guys saw it as well, where there are some companies making like a drug that's five hundred times more potent than fentanyl. Um, 
I forgot the name of it, but yeah. So like these, it's I feel like it's who kind needs of, that drug? Yeah, yeah. I kind of been given a one micro. But like they're manufacturing something purposely that's stronger, that's even more stronger than something that's already you know? so, so dangerous. Potent. So like you know they're they're like. Where like you know like I don't know like mm. how is it the does it sound right uh, Sue fentanyl in like a little I think it's a orally disintegrating tablet device and I think there was so. a, there was kind of uproar about the FDA mm. approving mm -hmm. a new it? more potent oh my god yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I get it I, I don't know uh -huh. for sure how I feel about it mm -hmm. now that's gonna be deployed in kind of operating room procedural situations oh. only mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. is it possible that some healthcare professionals will get a hold will of it. use it will yeah. distribute it um, there are mm. certainly risks I I can see value in having really potent opioids mm. in very controlled environments um, but but I think I, I understand the the outrage yeah. just yeah. Yeah. and the concept. confusion because yes. what's the well, point of having something that strong? It's, it's it's coming. I think it's really critical that it's coming. The news of that is coming out at this particular time in in our history in our healthcare uh, um, juncture yeah. that it's currently coming out as um, that for the news for that to be on the market and that the FDA approved that knowing everything that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, I think we'll move on. Do you want to? There's another on? question, uh, Dr. Hill, that you said, um, which is a great question. So, um, <laughs> um, one of them is Texas is one of ten states without an overdose good Samaritan law. Do you think this could or should be addressed with national le legislation? Mm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Could you explain the Good Samaritan law for people who don't know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I can, but Dr. Hill might be able to do it better. <clears throat> Basically, my understanding of it is that if you are in a place where there's um, drugs, like legal or illegal, and you administer naloxone to someone, and um, the police come and, like, if the person passes away or not, like you were being a good Samaritan by administering naloxone, mm -hmm. so you can't get any charges for like being there or for administering naloxone to a person mm -hmm. who then passes away or doesn't. Um, right. That's my understanding of it. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. I mean, uh, sometimes, uh, in many cases, those two pieces are separated. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. there's one part of liability protection for administering naloxone, and, and we've got that in Texas. But okay. what we don't have is protection if you've been using drugs from prosecution. So oh. uh, let's oh. say, uh, I'm gonna put this on you guys. Mandy, <laughs> Mandy okay. and Lindsay are uh, kicking back and using all heroin. Uh, <laughs> I love how you said kicking back. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long rotation, they finished today. Oh yeah. So, yeah, oh, I mean, they, they haven't seen each other in a while. They're yeah. celebrating, right? Okay, and, okay, okay, um, okay. And uh, Lindsay, uh, let's say she's also going to take a little bit of Xanax tonight with that dose. Oh um, my goodness. Okay. So she's, I see you, Lindsay. She's pushing the limits a little bit. Um, <laughs> and then Lindsay overdoses. Mm. If Mandy calls nine one one here in Texas, uh, police show up both of them could potentially be arrested for illegal drug use and right. possession. Um, yeah. So there are 40 states that have implemented 
some level of protection, at least for the person calling 911, sometimes right. for the victim as well, mm -hmm. uh, to incentivize them to call because right. none of us want Lindsay to die, yeah. right? Yeah. We, we love and appreciate Lindsay's we contributions Lindsay. <laughs> regardless of what decision she makes in this mm -hmm. capacity. And a lot right. of people are, are uh, functioning and working and being good to their families right. while they're right. using some drugs occasionally. So, mm -hmm. um, so anyway, we, we don't want her to die just because she used drugs. We don't want Mandy to have to sit there and let her friend yeah. die or make the decision between her going to jail or, or dying. So yeah. um, many states have implemented some level of protection, but there are tons of loopholes and yeah. people who use illegal drugs frankly know better than to trust these laws even right. when they exist. So they're mm -hmm. usually you can still be arrested for uh, not having paid child support recently, for mm -hmm. having a warrant out for your arrest for something else, yeah. um, mm -hmm. for have possessing more than a, a certain quantity of the identified drug because then you're charged with sale. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So it is, they're imperfect tools, mm -hmm. but uh, it's, a good it's at least something. It's a good step, yeah. it really is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just think it's uh, super interesting because like, yeah, I can imagine like the personal dilemma, the guilt that you could possibly feel like when you're watching your friend overdose mm -hmm. on something that you were, you were just doing for fun or something, yeah. something along those lines or uh, whatever case you're using the opioids for. Um, yeah, just be, it's, you, there has to be something for you to feel safe about administering something that could potentially save your clo close mm -hmm. loved one's friend's exactly. life without right. feeling like you're under the pressure of you could go to jail just for doing that right yeah yeah and unfortunately I feel like um, we've heard stories of patients and um, on our last rotation and different things and mm -hmm. I feel like if the patients are the ones advocating for the Good Samaritan laws mm -hmm. um, they're less likely to be heard for some reason and so I feel like mm -hmm. if other healthcare professionals and just like a bigger group of people gets behind this mm -hmm. um, and is kind of advocating for it that's yeah. that would be better and the patients mm -hmm. um, you know the people who would be using the Good Samaritan law but really it could be any of us yeah so it's, um, it's not just the pharmacy issue it's not just a medical issue it's right it's an everybody issue yeah mm -hmm. I think we should all kind of mm -hmm. like get behind this yeah mm -hmm. for sure yeah. I'm gonna keep going Okay, sure. Uh, Lindsay, did you have anything else to add? No. You, you being the one that was overdosing in this scenario. <laughs> 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 yeah, we love you, Lindsay. We love you. Um, what, which one? Uh, let's do. So, how do you actually properly administer Narcan and/or naloxone? He did it earlier. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like Flonase is a little different, but um, if you ever use Flonase, you just stick this up your nostril. But you just have to do <laughs> one, and then there's this little plunger in the bottom. You just and it miss up and you don't really have to worry about um like if the person's not breathing um because it just absorbs through the nasal oh wow and, and through the nasal cavity it's actually a lot better, better because mm -hmm. it gets to the brain faster there you go yeah. i almost forgot that from didn't do that great in that class. If, you, if you know how to get iv access that's even faster and paramedics should should be administering and tapering gradually through mm -hmm. intravenous access but, that's awesome but if you don't have that option uh, if you're not knowledgeable in that this is the way to go mm -hmm. and if you're stuck with a version of naloxone that's not as easy to use as narcan go to operationnaloxone.org, mm -hmm. click on the administer naloxone tab, and we've got a YouTube video that shows how to administer every version that you might get. Mm -hmm. That's amazing, yeah, and yeah. Um, in, in, in our podcast, we actually talked about, uh, earlier before this, before we went Instagram Live, uh, we talked about how 
EMTs currently uh, in some areas are being trained to administer naloxone as they're out and about um, because obviously they have the most access to directly to those patients uh, or first access uh, to patients who are overdosing. So I think, yeah, we t and we talked about that more mm -hmm. uh, in the earlier segment. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's amazing. Um, so number eight, that's a good one. You, you wanna, you wanna, yeah, sorry? sure. Yeah. Okay, so how do we as healthcare professionals make sure patients get pain medication that some of them desperately need while being conscien conscientious of new laws and guidelines limiting what can be given? Mm. Interesting. Yeah. It kind of, Mandy already talked about how we went to a pain management summit um, last year. Um, it's... It's difficult. I, it, mm -hmm. like, it did, stories came up at that summit where people who have chronic pain mm -hmm. are not, like they're suddenly, their supply is getting cut off. They're tapering off mm -hmm. quickly without their consent. So how do we like navigate that, better mm -hmm. navigate that? Mm -hmm. um, well, Mandy and I talked about the prescription drug monitoring program. Mm -hmm. I think that m would maybe provide some, at least like, give providers ease when they are mm -hmm. prescribing opioids, they have to look in the PMP, mm -hmm. the prescription monitoring program, mm -hmm. um, to see patients' um, use mm -hmm. of any controlled substance right. before writing for a prescription. So, so maybe it's, a, so it's a, a log of what they're taking, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, mm -hmm. opioids, what they've picked, yeah, they yeah. picked mm -hmm. up, right, okay. So maybe that would provide ease for mm -hmm. the providers mm -hmm. to feel comfortable mm -hmm to write for a prescription for a patient who may actually need it, who mm -hmm. may actually have chronic pain. Right. Um, it's my hope that positive things come out of this new mandated PMG. Gotcha. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, could you just repeat the question? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's a long question. It's okay. um, how do we, as healthcare professionals, make sure patients get pain medication, some who desperately need it, while being consci conscientious of new laws and guidelines limiting what can be given? Yeah, um, I think just being educated on what those laws are in mm -hmm. the first place and then also um, kind of just staying up to date on um, the most recent literature as far as pain management goes. And like um, you might be thinking you're doing the right thing by tapering patients off of opioids, but um, then all this literature comes out about how it might actually increase harm. Mm -hmm. So I think. Um, being educated yourself first so that way you can educate the patient um, mm -hmm. and just ask them, you know, how are you feeling? Uh, what did the doctor tell you about this medication? Mm -hmm. um, can I tell you a little bit about about it? And if you have any further questions, you can call me mm -hmm. um, and just kind of forming that relationship of and like not not looking down on patients because yeah. they are on opioids long term yeah. or not looking down yeah. on patients because they got off but have to get back on or something mm -hmm. like that just mm -hmm. kind of being open and being a good pharmacist yeah. so really yeah. or any other healthcare professional right. yeah and so mm -hmm. really taking accountability as you're the provider you're the one that's mm -hmm. supposed to be responsible for your patient's outcomes mm -hmm. um, and not putting placing the blame and the responsibility all on them yeah because mm -hmm. uh, obviously you're the healthcare provider you have some responsibility for their health as well mm -hmm. um, if not more than any, yeah for those of us who are not traditional prescribers, mm -hmm. ultimately, a lot of the power in this situation lies in the mm -hmm. hands and, and decision making of the prescriber. So for us, mm -hmm. it's more about how we talk to and about patients who are on opioids for chronic pain and how we advocate for them. 
to the prescriber. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly working on the clinic side with prescribers, mm-hmm. I can understand the many incentives that would encourage you to taper or avoid prescribing opioids. Uh, sometimes you can't help it because there's a new essentially prior auth process that you have to go through to get more than 90 milligram morphine equivalents. When I was practicing under delegated prescriptive authority with diabetes and hypertension and heart failure, I, when you know a prior auth is coming, you just don't prescribe the medication. That's the mm-hmm. goal, yeah. um, mm-hmm. but you often find yourself avoiding engaging in the prior auth process even when it actually would benefit the patient. Isn't it the patient um, right? So, you know, prescribers are being targeted by their institutions. If they're in some top percentile of opioid prescribers, they're being targeted by the DEA for the same reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of those prescribers deserve to be targeted and some don't, but right. there is a lot of fear out there. And so if you're a, another clinician who's advocating for a specific patient, um, just try not to be too confrontational, but be really direct and, yeah. and share the evidence that does exist. Mm-hmm. I, when I was talking to prescribers, at a local federally qualified health center I was practicing in, if I ever advocated for a patient to get opioids, oftentimes I'd get shocked looks and they'd really? say, aren't you the non, the anti-opioid guy? <laughs> <laughs> all, all because I support naloxone, naloxone access. Right, right, right. And, and so it, it took them a while to reorient, but I will say that I got a call from one of those prescribers the other day asking for my help to address uh, how to slightly increase a patient's uh, opioid dose mm-hmm. and which version of naloxone to give them. So I think that just being persistent will ultimately lead to prescribers being considering their uh, the ramifications of their decisions more mm. thoroughly, and that advocacy can come from fellow physicians as well, mm. and, and sometimes has the most impact when it does. Right, that's really that's super interesting, and that's amazing yeah. that you already got, you're getting calls from people to actually be able to implement these programs and things like that, yeah. And uh, not to brag on pharmacists too much, but- No, brag, please, we need the bragging, we need it. Uh, A clinical pharmacist is in a a great position to support other prescribers as they're making complicated decisions about opioid therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the time to engage a pharmacist is when a patient's on multiple medications for a single indication, Mm -hmm. and you're not exactly sure which is the next best choice and how they're going to work together and what the risks are. Mm-hmm. Right, um, right. That's, that's our wheelhouse. Yeah, that's our wheelhouse. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so do you want to go okay, to the sure. next one? Yeah, yeah so um, how long do you think it will take before Narcan will be readily available for everyone within all public areas? Interesting. If it ever gets to that point, what do you think? Do you guys think that's a... a Good idea. Like I've I've heard people talk about this model, this uh, putting it in like every mall, like an external mm-hmm. defibrillator. Um, do you think that's a good model? Do you think it would be better to have every individual have, that might be at risk has their own naloxone? What's uh, I don't have, know that I know the. Answer. I mean, on campus, yeah. there's it's already in the most some of the it's most. It's in like uh, jester yeah. counter. Jester counter here. Yeah. It's like a dormitory. Yeah. Uh, Operational oxone. Put it there. Ah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. A little plug. But little yeah, plug. I think having it in places where first, res- like, if a first responder can't get there mm-hmm. in a reasonable amount of time, um, having it somewhere and having someone trained that's always there. So mm-hmm. if that's a mall cop or if that's you know someone at the mm-hmm. library. Um, I think that's a great idea, and I don't think that should be, like, when. I think it should just happen now. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah, I think people probably have different opinions on that. Mm. 
I think it can't hurt to have it yeah. in public places like malls. Mm -hmm. I don't know how utilized it would be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, just like speaking from personal experience, I feel like giving it to individuals would be more beneficial, um, especially I've seen like parents who mm -hmm. have it, um, more so for like somebody who's using opioids illicitly or other illicit substances, mm. um, having it at home. If you have a friend who you know struggles with mm -hmm. opioid use disorder, having it on hand. Mm -hmm. um, I keep it in my home, you know, just in case that someone ever calls me, mm -hmm. knowing mm -hmm. that, you know, people know that I'm really passionate about this. So right. sometimes I do get calls like asking for guidance and help. So I think maybe having it individually mm. um, would be more utilized, but mm -hmm. it certainly can't hurt. So, so just going off of that, uh, I just it popped in my head like, mm -hmm. what if maybe uh, like naloxone trainings, like training people on how to act properly use it, maybe people would feel uncomfortable having public access to it if they don't actually know how to administer it. So maybe yeah. including with that including trainings mm -hmm. to be able to supplement the public use of naloxone uh, yeah. would help people feel more comfortable to actually utilize that yeah. if they saw yeah. it, in, you know, if someone's overdosing in a public place, there's, a, you see, you know, naloxone sitting yeah. in the corner, but yeah. you hesitate because obviously you don't, you don't do actually it. be yeah. and scared you would actually when you see harm the situation yeah. as opposed to uh, make it better. Well, yeah, because um, you don't so know yeah. if you need to do CPR, mm -hmm. you don't know. Yeah, you don't yeah, know what yeah exactly. You, mm -hmm. you never know if it's actually overdose or, yeah, like you said. Unless you've been trained, just, unless you know the signs yeah, and symptoms. Exactly. Yeah. I volunteered at Operation Naloxone um, every, I think it's September. Um, mm -hmm. There's a citywide event called Recovery in the Park. Which Operation Naloxone always um, volunteers at and offers IPI hours. Um, for pharmacy students. Oh, But when I have volunteered at it in the past, mm -hmm. you're educating people. A lot of people who are there are in recovery. Some are those who support individuals in recovery, like myself. Mm -hmm. And um, so you're handing out naloxone for free. Mm -hmm. And when I've handed it out, it, we give out a little um, like half sheet of paper on how to use it mm -hmm. so wow. that they can just take it, you know, keep it at home. If they ever need to use it, hopefully they keep that paper with it yeah. to refer back to. I think your, your statement about having some combination of, you know, it can't hurt to have it available in public spaces if a fire extinguisher or an AED is like a pre-made spot where you can just stick it and get more buy-in, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But uh, our findings on campus definitely align with your statement that you get more return on your investment by directly distributing it to individuals. We've, mm -hmm. we've had naloxone stocked in the dorms since the fall of 2016. Mm -hmm. We gave every single UT police officer a dose along with training. That's awesome. Uh, we've had it available for understanding order to access from the campus pharmacy. And none of those sources have ever been utilized to save a life. Mm -hmm. um, but we've distributed a few hundred doses from pharmacy student-led mm -hmm. peer trainings, and That's we know awesome. of at least five overdose reversals from medications awesome. that wow. we distributed. That's awesome. That's so five good. lives saved. So, yeah. and that's uh, we know reporting's low, and we're certain it's more yeah, than that. Yeah, obviously that's skewed because how many people report. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the this confirms public health data that says if you just make naloxone readily available, someone who comes in to pick it up or comes to a training to get it, yeah. um, 
people self-identify, people who are at risk or know someone at risk, they see the training, they're the ones who come, and then they yeah. use it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do we have time for one more question? Is I mean, I'm okay if we stay. Let's do it. Uh, okay. You want to do the last one? I yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then we'll do a wrap up, and we'll just uh, I'll I'll ask y'all to whatever y'all want to leave the, with the audience. You can you can tell them directly. Okay. Um, so I know that Dr. Hill is familiar <laughs> with kratom, 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 uh, kratom, Mitragyna speciosa, a substance used among some subcultures for its psychoactive effects, and to help people suffering from opiate withdrawals. The DEA has attempted to outlaw Kratom. Kratom? Kratom. 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 <laughs> and it is illegal in some states already. Do you see the possibility of a nationwide ban? How do you think this will affect those who use Kratom to come off of other opiates? Do you, see, do you think Kratom has any utility in combating the opioid crisis? Well, you guys are the experts in pronunciation, so yeah. <laughs> and you probably you're in the the age demographic and on campus to maybe know more people who have personally used it. What do you think? And then I'll give kind of what I'm. Okay. Um, I had actually never heard of kratom until my first rotation, which is the one Mandy and I did together mm -hmm. um, in different treatment centers, like different sites for substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. And um, that's where I first um, heard about and discovered Kratom. Somebody mm -hmm. was in the detox unit, detoxing from wow. Kratom multiple. and other- Multiple people. Multiple people wow. from Kratom and other substances. So do I think it has any place in combating the opioid cri crisis? I would say no. I mean, just from my personal experience, seeing people in treatment, in detox, trying to get, mm -hmm. you know, detox off of Kratom. Mm -hmm. um, do I think that there would be a nationwide ban? I don't know. Because mm. um, from what I understand, you can like walk into a GNC and buy it. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow. I get my supplements from there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know. Maybe it could be classified under CAM, like we were talking about earlier. Mm. Yeah. But just, I've probably seen the extreme. And because I've seen that, I'm kind of hesitant about Kratom. Of course, Kratom. yeah. Right. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, and I mean, people would say this about cannabis too, like, oh, it's totally safe, mm -hmm. like, there's no harms associated with it's it, you can't, you can't get dependent on it, but there were wow. also people in treatment for cannabis use disorder, it's well. like mm -hmm. in the DSM now, mm -hmm. um, and so I think, like, Kratom probably hasn't been studied that much, mm -hmm. and like, people have probably overdosed or had really bad side effects from using a lot of it and that's mm -hmm. why the DEA has wanted to crack down but same as Lindsay I would need to know more information about mm -hmm. its clinical use in opiate withdrawal mm -hmm. um, like what people are using it for and is it I mean I'm all always open mm -hmm. for medication assisted treatment um, yeah. whatever helps patients but I don't know enough about it right enough now, about it right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For, for people who aren't familiar with Kratom, um, it is essentially, it's a leaf of a plant that um, has been used in some Asian societies for a long time as a, a kind of as a medicine, kind of as a recreational substance. Um, you chew the leaf mm -hmm. and you get kind of a, a an opioid buzz that is uh, maybe a little less sedating than a typical opioid mm -hmm. um, but people who even chew massive amounts of the leaf 
can get severe opioid-related problems like uh, severe constipation. Um, so it, it certainly acts in an opioid-like manner. Mm -hmm. um, in the U.S., if you're getting Kratom, most likely you are buying it from a like a kind of head shop sort of place that right, right. Um, also might be a place that sells K2 or Spice or, or was a place that mm -hmm. sold that at least when it was more readily available. Right. Oftentimes it's sold in the same manner. It's like in a, a foil pouch inside of capsules and so it's like a ground up concentrate of the leaf. Um, I, have, I have known people who took uh, you know, a bunch of the capsules or a large amount of the powder um, to get a high that uh, was described to me as uh, opioid-like, not as good with more of a stomach ache, really? um, oh. which to me oh. re <laughs> does remind me of the way people talk about buprenorphine or the commonly mm -hmm. known as Suboxone. Suboxone. So, oh. um, so some opioid effect, kind of incomplete, not uh, no substantiated mm -hmm. risk for mm -hmm. overdose death. Mm. So uh, in that regard, like I can see mm. a potential role and um, and I see an intersection here with uh, vaping, for example, uh, where yes. uh, as healthcare professionals, we're kind of resistant to it. And part of that is our paternalistic instinct to want to have full control over what people use to treat a, a medical problem. But in the realm of addiction, we've so horribly failed people that mm -hmm. it's yeah. understandable that they would want to circumvent medical access to, to access a treatment directly. Right, um, right. I, you know, I, I personally don't think that I'm not very concerned about buprenorphine diversion. Evidence shows most people who buy buprenorphine on the street use it for therapeutic reasons. Uh, likewise, I, I don't know how concerned I am about Kratom, um, but the jury's kind of still out. I'm, I haven't made up my mind. Right. Um, I feel a high level of certainty that it will be illegal very soon. Very soon right. Um, right now it's being sold as a dietary supplement, which right. means that it doesn't have any medical use or any misuse or harm potential. It obviously has harm potential. I mean, it's been a co-occurring substance in at least like 30 overdoses reported by the FDA. Mm. Um, certainly has, uh, it's not a vitamin. I mean, right. it does, it's not a dietary supplement. But and I mean, you're telling me that I can walk into GNC, buy my branch chain amino acid, <laughs> and create them at the same time? Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Uh, it's, uh, it's interesting, yeah. and I, I, I don't think that we have enough evidence to say where how it should be regulated yeah. it's not a dietary yeah. supplement though yeah. i mean that's yeah. that's kind of yeah. crazy so um, some level of regulation makes sense mm -hmm. i would think that the desire and need for kratom would go away mm -hmm. if we decreased barriers to getting to accessing buprenorphine mm -hmm. um, but uh, in the meantime it might be helping some people yeah yeah let's uh, wrap it up okay um so as we get ready to wrap up i'm just going to ask our lovely guests, Lindsay, Mandy, and Dr. Lucas Hill, um, what do you want to leave the people with? What do you want them to know? That there's education out there and that there are resources mm -hmm. and help. Um, if you or you have a loved one or a friend who is either struggling with pain management or opioid use disorder, um, there's lots of resources out there. So. Mm -hmm. Go to Dr. Hill's website, Operation Naloxone. <laughs> uh, Link in the description. <laughs> we'll, we'll be in the description. And stay up to date and get educated. Yeah. Um, for me, I would just say, like, no matter what you're passionate about, no matter what 
field of medicine, field of healthcare, you're going to go in just to like remain compassionate and remain um, open-minded about this topic and about people with substance use disorders, people who use drugs, um, and just reach out to people like us or like other people in the community that have experience um, if you want to know more. Yeah. People people in positions of power, patients, legislators, they listen to you. They listen to healthcare students. And um, I've seen healthcare students lead the charge to legalize syringe access in some states. Um, you are going to be the people making crucial decisions about who can access care and, and what constitutes good care in the near future. Um, so just don't underestimate your own power to address this issue and make sure that you're, you're trying to gather all the information that you can. The Knox and Lord himself. Mm. <laughs> Look at that. Nita, do you want right. to give your, give your little thank, spiel? No, thank you guys so much for coming and joining us. I have learned so much yeah. here. <laughs> I've had so many people reach out to me saying they're so excited to hear what you guys have to say, and especially oh. during such mm -hmm. a crisis that's happening right mm -hmm. now so mm -hmm. yeah we would love to have you guys come on again hopefully yeah maybe <laughs> when <laughs> we get more like stable <laughs> we're, we're actually in the process of thinking about doing another uh something another music video similar to the don't be a butt a tobacco uh, station music video yeah. but dean duhan wanted to get in on it too and <laughs> possibly get out, do a little outreach with like del Mez, see if there's any faculty or indoor students who wanted to help us with the with the project about the opioid crisis, if yeah. it would be something that you I might be interested in. Dr. Hill can rap or yep. something. Yeah, <laughs> drop, yeah, drop some fire <laughs> verses. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Uh, but he said, uh, uh, I, I, told, I told Dean Duhon, he was like, oh, he can't, he can't rap. We'll just do a voiceover. <laughs> so he's calling you out, so you gotta, you gotta show him up. All right, all right. Okay, yeah, of course, <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely be uh, handling that project if, uh, if that comes within the next uh, soon time, as soon as PT year calms down. down a little bit, maybe. Yeah. Well, it's just um, probably gonna be me. <laughs> yeah, or, or we, just, we just make it work throughout. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, just to wrap things up, um, I'm Norman Wynn, uh, podcast co-host. I'm Nida Mundy, the second podcast co-host. And our lovely <laughs> guest, you can go ahead and do a little spiel. Or sorry, just like, this is Lindsay Loera. Lindsay Loera. <laughs> Mandy Renfro. Dr. Lucas Hill. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, this has been another episode of the Healthcare Scholar Audio Experience uh, and or podcast. Um, and so yeah, I just want to leave y'all with go out and just do what you're passionate about. Just do it. Stop watching this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>